Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at Bloomberg.com. Well, talking about fake news is David Garrity, CEO of GVA Research. Thank you, David, so much for being here and, and sort of ex- helping us understand how big of a problem the proliferation of some of this fake news is on a global level. Certainly, Lisa. My pleasure. And thank you, Pim. Um, <clears throat> you know, in terms of looking at the current election cycle, 2016, we didn't see the rise of this sort of uh, unverified content being put out onto the social media. And if we went back to 2012, we were in a situation here where social media wasn't really at a point where the size of their audience was outstripping that of traditional news organizations. However, four years further down the road, things obviously have massively changed. And we're now in a situation where organizations such as the Pew Center have said that of their survey respondents recently, about 48% of them are relying upon social media as being their primary information source. However, social media organizations bend over backwards to say, we're not news organizations, we're technology companies. Well, the fact of the matter is, the size of their audience is now larger than traditional news organizations. They are, in effect, news organizations because their audience treats them as such. However, given the fact that they're now adults, They don't wish to take on the responsibilities that would fall traditionally to a news organization. Which means they don't they would what not enjoy the protections of the US Constitution as a news media outlet. And they would also say that they would be subject to libel laws. Well, that was where I was going to go with this, because we all recall the libel uh, suit that was filed against Vice. Uh, was it? No, uh, actually, I beg your look, pardon. Look at the case against This was Gawker. Hulk Hogan. That's yeah, what Gawker, I meant. I beg your pardon, actually, not Vice. It was, Gawker. It was a director of Facebook, Peter Thiel. Yes. Who funded that lawsuit. And exactly. this is not the only lawsuit that, Pete, that Thiel and other billionaires have funded. So clearly, if people are concerned about a free press, people are concerned about having proper information, and if proper information is what is necessary to have an informed electorate that can make proper and appropriate choices in elections, liberal democracy needs an informed electorate. Misinformation cuts right at that root. I want to play the devil's advocate because in your comments, you're basically saying that uh, the Facebooks and the Twitters of the world really ought to. So the implication is that they really ought to police uh, what's getting distributed and and understood as truth. At the same time, isn't the onus on uh, the consumers of this? I mean, isn't it to sort of seek out the verified information? And I mean, by how do you how do you make sure that uh, the Twitters and Facebooks of the world aren't de facto censors and becoming, you know, uh, and viewed, frankly, as as the man or, or sort of be viewed as in bed with a particular political party and, and going after, you know, another side. I mean, this, this sort of edges into some pretty scary territory. Yes, we, we are relying upon an informed electorate to basically exercise their judgment. But at the same time, if we look at how social media sites have developed, their algorithms, their programming is developed in such a way as to show people what it is that they already like. The idea being, if the dogs are eating the dog food, give them more dog food. And from that standpoint, we've seen the creation of basically filter bubbles in terms of people basically sharing information with their friends. And they're basically just given more of the same. They're not given a contrasting point of view. There is nothing that 
as individuals requires them to be fair and balanced in terms of what media they consume. There is a concern here, which I think we have to look more at the corporate advertisers who've been looking at using social media as a channel increasingly because that's where the audience has migrated. Were the advertisers, from the standpoint of concerns over their own brand reputations, not wishing to have an ad served next to a piece of news that is fake or false or hateful or misleading, you know, there could be a move here by advertisers to essentially sort of say, yes, social media may be a lot of noise, but it's not something we wish to identify with. Why? Because we've spent, you know, billions of dollars building our reputations and we're not going to see it sold away for something that basically gives away the truth or debases it. Didn't that already happen with Breitbart? Wasn't there an ad distributor that removed its uh, its services from Breitbart, calling it uh, hate speech? It was last week. There was there was something like this. I mean, it, it is there are there is starting to be some pushback, but uh, it'll be curious to see whether it'll be. I was actually in a meeting recently with a fellow who was uh, in charge of WPP Group, a very large global advertising agency, amongst the largest. And he was the one who was simply indicating that this was a likely response to fake news coming off of this election, that he would basically go out and counsel the global advertisers that they work with to say, look, focus on reliable sources of media and information. You know, from that standpoint, social media, like any other organization, has to pay bills. And if they don't get any money from advertisers, I think their tune will change. Well, let me just give you the uh, the detail here. The uh, the Breitbart uh, example that you just offered, Lisa, it was App Nexus, and they deactivated Breitbart News after an audit of the site's content determined that it violated the advertising network's code of conduct banning hate speech. It it and great hate speech, but it didn't say fake speech. And I want to, David. How long have you been covering the technology industry? I mean, uh, more technology than- sector of going back before the t- change of the millennium. Okay, so uh, consequences, responsibilities. Do technology companies have a great track record when it comes to the social consequences and responsibilities? Because if they want those press uh, uh, freedoms, then maybe they're going to have to change the way that they charge. This is very true. And if we go back and look historically at technology companies, they tend to have a, a shorter uh, lifespan, if you will, than, than other companies. But one thing that people have noted more broadly is that the lifespan of corporations has been contracting. Um, but arguably, one would say technology companies lead in this regard. Typically, there has been a disposition on the part of managements or in early stage investors in technology companies essentially to build them for sale. Basically, pass the buck on to somebody else, the acquirer, to have the acquirer solve the problem. Some of the concerns that there have been in the case of social media companies is being concerned about how fickle the demographics of their audience was. Certainly, we've seen early age demographics going from, say, 15 to 24 have been migrating away from Facebook. They've been migrating more towards things like Snapchat. Obviously, we'll see how well that does with its IPO. But nonetheless, the audience is fickle. And from that standpoint, one would argue that there is a hands-off attitude in order to maintain an audience. And so as a result, you know, this kind of um, disregard, if you will, uh, for the niceties that news organizations need to follow have certainly led social media organizations, Facebook et al., to wander far afield.
Um, now I want to turn our attention to the fate of Italian banks. We have Jonathan Tice. He's our senior banks analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence joining us from London. Uh, uh, Jonathan, uh, there is an, a referendum scheduled for December the 4th. What does the referendum in Italy mean, not only for the government, but for the future of Italian banking? Yes, good, good morning. I think the referendum per se was clearly Mario Renzi, um, the prime minister, the prime minister looking to consolidate his position or have an exit strategy. And in terms of what it means uh, for the sort of wider economy and the banks, um, if it's a no vote and Renzi does walk, then quite clearly all of the things the Italian banks, um, mostly via Unicredit and Montepassi, where most of the um, people are looking at the moment are trying to do, they get set back. Confidence dwindles. We've already seen, for example, uh, a 5 billion euro 50-year bond that was issued very recently by Italy. That's now trading at 85 cents in the euro. So it's fallen 15% in a very few weeks. Yeah, when they so, issued it, I think it was like 2.83% uh, or something around there. And you wonder who would you know lend their money for 50 years? Well, so, I mean, we've, we've seen 100-year bonds in Europe. Certainly, um, sometimes you do look at it and think, do people believe that the, um, the Eurozone crisis has gone away? And if anything, as uh, very little is achieved, we're getting further right um, politically well, across Europe. And there are so many questions unresolved with so little action and, and resolution in the banks. Um, it's very hard to see this not dragging into 2017 and beyond. Well, okay, so the Italian banks have been in trouble for a while. There are a number of them that are looking uh, for some kind of solution that may, if possible, include some kind of government bailout. Um, again, that's not necessarily possible under some of the uh, recent rules that have been implemented. But can you walk us through the direct mechanism by which the banks will suffer in a no vote for the referendum. In other words, walk us through kind of, is this a matter of yields on uh, on Italian government bonds blowing out any of their holdings, losing a lot of value, uh, borrowing costs for them, you know, ballooning? Is that sort of the, the mechanism by which uh, this will lead to trouble for them? No, not really. I mean, okay. that is, that's <laughs> ancillary. That's part of it, because um, the... Italian banks own several hundred billion of government bonds. So clearly yields blowing out means that the unrealized gains on those bonds are disappearing. And Italian banks include that in regulatory solvency. So it's unhelpful, but that's not the problem. The problem is that the banks have got um, several hundred billion of non-performing loans. They've got 200 plus billion of the very worst sort of loans. And Montepaschi, which is the poster child for everything that's bad and um, needs addressing in Italy, they are trying to raise up to $5 billion and offload tens of billions of non-performing loans. And we need proof that there is actually a secondary market um, for the sale of non-performing loans because it's not just Montepaschi. Unicredit is the largest bank in Italy by assets. They've got tens of billions, multiples of what Montepaschi has. So if we lose confidence, if the market takes a step back and doesn't understand the direction politically and regulatorily of Italy into 2017, it's very hard to see how Montepaschi and then Unicredit, which has, uh, by the way, a strategy day on the 13th of December where they're going to try and articulate how many billions of new capital they need and how they're going to get it, if we get the no vote and there is significant fallout even from here, because things have already moved, um, the problem remains, how on earth does Italy address its bad loans? Jonathan, the uh, the introduction of a sort of a bad loan bank, uh, hasn't that been considered and uh, have 
U.S. institutions such as Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan, they have indicated that something might change if indeed that referendum gets the no vote, as you describe. Well, the problem is that um, you can't have state aid. And because Italy has been very, very slow in applying bail-in and forcing its banks to take its medicine, um, the, the, the bail-in rule effectively kicked in for Italy at the beginning of 2016. One of the problems they face is that, unlike many other markets, a lot of the bond or the debt funding that the banks have is actually held by retail bondholders. So the last thing really that you want for the Italian bank system is to have a bail-in from here because suddenly you've got a lot of retail investors and and retail deposit holders who will lose significant amount of money. At that point, you've got a proper liquidity crisis for the bank system as well. So um, unfortunately, the the bail-in, should Monte Paschi struggle to raise its $5 billion and if it uh, doesn't manage to use the securitization guarantee from the government to offload its non-performing loans. I think bail-in is what people will begin to think. At that point, you're a retail bondholder in some of the other small Italian banks. What do you do with your money and what happens to liquidity? And as we all know from 2008, when you get a significant liquidity problem, it becomes a capital problem very quickly. Right. Uh, and we're already concerned about the solvency of the Italian banks. Jonathan, real quick, uh, is any of this priced into the market currently that a no vote will be uh, the, the presiding one? Oh, absolutely. I think the market's well aware um, that this will be the case. The fact is, though, you've got France at the moment. You've got what happens with Brexit. So is it priced in adequately? I don't know. But as we just said, um, you've got a 5 billion 50-year bond away, and it's fallen 15% in two to three weeks. The market's clearly very aware of this. It just doesn't understand what the real number needs to be. Lisa Abramowitz, uh, something else happening today taking place in Dallas. AT&T is set to reveal its new online video service. Of course, uh, AT&T, the owner of the video streaming service DirecTV Now, uh, it's uh, the country's top pay TV producer. And we know that they also want to get into the content business. Uh, We don't know uh, exactly whether uh, ATT will receive a regulatory approval for their uh, pending uh, their pending acquisition. Um, is it? Uh, this is a good introduction, though, for our next guest because um, AT&T has been behind uh, this uh, this venture. Kun Gao is the co-founder and the general manager of Crunchyroll. And uh, I love the uh, name, by the way. It makes me hungry, though. Well, okay, Kun, you've, you've got one. You've got one follower uh, there already, <laughs> already because of the name. Tell us what is what is Crunchyroll, and then maybe just explain the relationship between you and AT&T because they're, they're part owner. Sure. Uh, thank you for having me. Crunchyroll is an anime streaming service. We bring the latest shows out of Japan, and we stream it to eight different languages, including English, Spanish, French, Portuguese, Italian, German, Arabic, into 160 different countries. Uh, we have millions of viewers and a lot of paid subscribers. Our relationship with AT&T, they are an investor along with the Trenin Group into Otter Media, which is a digital media venture uh, company, and that is a majority investor into Crunchyroll. 
Um, I want to talk a little bit about the demand for viewing anime or, or sort of a Japanese form of hand-drawn or computer animation. How much has it sort of gained in popularity away from Japan? I mean, I know that it has been popular for years in, in, certain, um, in certain circles, but, you know, is it proliferating more? Absolutely. We think this is just the early innings, and there's a lot more demand and a lot more popularity to be had. Uh, what we've seen is that uh, there's a lot of misconception about what is anime and generally animation. Anime is a medium for amazing storytelling, just like live action is a medium. And within that medium, there's a lot of diversity. There's a lot of different genres within that medium, including romance, horror, sci-fi, comedy, action, drama, you name it. And there's just so much rich storytelling, amazing characters. I think that's what draws uh, audience into it. It has, it has been very much under the radar for a lot of years, but I think that's because it's mostly the fans who are into it who are really in the know. And what we're really seeing now is that the fan base has grown, and they're the millennials today, and they're uh, figuring out new ways to access this content, to engage with this content, and making it even more popular. Can you explain the financial uh, background for Crunchyroll in the context of advertisements, but also in the context of you can have your own YouTube television channel now, and I believe that you can watch a lot of these types of programs in uh, another format. How does Crunchyroll figure into this? How do you make money? Absolutely. So we're still really early uh, innings into digital media, and we're still learning a lot. But I think one thing that we've learned and that's been validated across other different businesses in this space is that it takes uh, a lot of uh, capital to be able to make investments to create premium, truly premium content. And premium content is what gets uh, people to really engage and to get ultimately people to pay and subscribe to your content. Maybe because you've so, got like general discussion boards and forums about each individual character and episode. That, that's right. So the, the difference here is that comparing, uh, for example, us to other services, there are a lot of services that are in the digital space that are basically something for everyone. What we're trying to be is we're trying to be everything for some people, uh, the most passionate fans. And what we've seen is that with really passionate fans, for them it's not just let's watch a video and, and, and let's watch a show and let's come back later. Once they, they engage with the show, they're absolutely engaging with everything else. They're going, going to the community, they're, they're engaging in forums, they're transacting by buying merchandise and figures around the shows they're watching, they're going to physical conventions, they're just doing a lot more things and, and creating a lot more engagement and hopefully a lot more opportunities for monetization. How big is the online market for viewing anime? Right now we have many millions of viewers over the U.S. as well as the rest of the world. We think that there's still a lot more potential. Ultimately, we think that anime is one of the ways that millennial audiences uh, really want to engage with digital content, and they really embrace it, and, and they really can relate to a lot of the characters, a lot of the stories that are being told, and they, they think it's a lot of fun. You know, I want to bring up something we talked about earlier in the program. We were talking about social media sites um, and, and whether they ought to be uh, getting involved in some of the conversations or preventing uh, speech that might be either hate speech or, you know, if there's something that veers into some kind of inappropriate uh, territory. I mean, do you guys have some kind of uh, approach to that? 
I think that's an amazing and very relevant topic. So with animation, what, what we do is we, we take everything that's on air on TV and we uh, rebroadcast it and we subtitle it into multiple languages. But what we have seen is that animation is amazingly diverse and there's a lot of storytelling around uh, empowerment, uh, around growing up, around a lot of these themes that are anti-bullying, around uh, really how do you develop yourself and find your own perspective as, as, a, as an individual and, and how do you do that uh, uh, with friends. So we think that the content is amazingly empowering and not just towards one demographic or one audience, it, it captures an entire spectrum of uh, perspective in, in terms of uh, not just male but female, uh, various uh, other uh, gender, sexual orientations, uh, all, all of those things. So it's, it's an amazing diverse medium for storytelling and empowerment. Kun, uh, you graduated from UC Berkeley with honors. You got a Bachelor of Science in Electrical Engineering, Computer Science, also a BA in Applied Mathematics. Uh, does anyone question, like, you're working with cartoons. Does that, <laughs> how, what, how does that go down? So I, I had this, uh, I had this uh, debate with myself uh, many, many years ago. I think uh, you know, the path was either academia or uh, go into working with animation. And I think the, the great thing about animation is we're able to bring, uh, through Crunchyroll, amazing storytelling that touches people, touches many millions of people right. uh, in meaningful ways. And I think that's ultimately very impacting and very, very rewarding for me personally, as well yeah. as to be able to reach so many people and, and, and to be able to impact so many lives. Yeah. Kun Gao, co-founder and general manager of Crunchyroll, coming to us from San Francisco, talking about uh, the movement of anime to the United States. This is Bloomberg. Wait, wait, is that a black sweater? No. Do I want to get that microwave? Wait. Do we have to be on the radio? Oh, yes, that's right. I'll stop shopping. Uh, but one person who uh, may go back to shopping, Christian Magoon, CEO of Amplify Investments and manager of the Amplify Online Retail ETF, is here in the studio to talk about what we know so far about how well uh, stores did on Black Friday, of course, as we just heard from Greg Jarrett in the Bloomberg Newsroom. It's unclear whether we have a better sense from maybe Cyber Monday than we do from Black Friday. Uh, but Christian, thank you so much for being with us. I, I want to start out with how much do we really know already about Black Friday? There was that uh, National Federation of uh, National Retail Federation that came out saying the average spending per person was down slightly uh, to $289 per person from more than $299 last year. How accurate is this? Yeah, I think it's uh, fairly accurate. Big data is now emerging in the retail scene. It's less about opinions, and it's more about gathering all these streams of data into quick analytics. And I think uh, that's correct. I think consumers haven't spent uh, as much so far this year. I think it's probably due to the fact that these uh, deals have been extended before Black Friday and even after Cyber Monday. So I think there's less urgency to go out and make your purchase on that single day or wait for, for, for Cyber Monday today. 
And that's impacting, I think, some of the swiftness of the sales. But I think they're still going to be there. And it's clear the big uh, uh, winner here is online retail versus brick and mortar. Christian, I'm wondering if you could just tell us a little bit of your background going back to Claymore sure. and the exchange-traded fund industry and then the creation and the manager of this new Amplify online retail ETF symbol iBuy. Yeah, so I've been involved in the ETF industry since uh, the early 2000s and done about 60-some funds in the United States. And uh, this particular fund, the online retail ETF uh, iBuy, it's kind of its coming out day, so to speak. It's the first time it's been out during the holiday shopping season. And you know, it's a, a way to actually take advantage of not only the seasonal trend, but it's really kind of a, a change in the whole retail and environment. Uh, the amount of uh, sales in online retail is growing at about a 20% annualized pace versus brick and mortar. And uh, that's a trend many investors don't have exposure to into the, in the traditional brick and mortar exchange traded funds out there. So iBuy offers that focused exposure and today's like it's a holiday, so to speak. Well, because I was, sorry, because I just, because I was looking at the, the, the companies that are in the uh, the ETF, the iBuy, okay, Etsy is yes. like a, a major position. PetMed Express, one eight hundred Flowers, Overstock, Nutrisystems, HSN. What is the the rationale for why some companies go in and why some don't? Yeah, so there's a hard and fast rule. A company has to have 70% of their revenue coming from online retail sales. So if you don't meet that 70% threshold, you're not in the ETF. So Best Buy had a bright spot with online sales. Walmart and their acquisition of Jet.com has had a bright spot in online sales, but it's not 70% of their revenue. This ETF really wants to have companies that are exposed, uh, the majority of their revenue, to that online uh, trend. Uh, so, yeah, believe it or not, Pim, Amazon is not even in the top 10 holdings here. But when you look at these companies like Etsy or Pet Meds or 800 Flowers, uh, they've had some unbelievable performance. A lot of it has been fueled, we believe, because they're available online. And that segment is just growing uh, markedly. How concerned are you about their share falling markedly when the uh, biggest retailers figure out how to better sort of uh, negotiate their their transactions online? Yeah, it's clear that you know Walmart, for example, is you know doing some strategic acquisitions. I think. Um, where the ETF could benefit is some of the merger and acquisition potential. So some of these uh, uh, companies will get taken out by these broad-based retailers that are brick and mortar because they have to. I think these companies will benefit because of the consolidation that's going to happen in the physical space, uh, whether that's in terms of employees or, or square footage. But I think these companies not only should benefit kind of this growth, we're only doing 8% of all sales online right now. Uh, estimates are that it goes to 50% by 2030. So we're seeing a, a global trend that's much more than one single day. And I think this ETF and the company should stand to benefit. I want to thank you very much for coming in and uh, giving us a look under the hood of uh, iBuy, the new uh, Amplify online retail ETF. Christian Magoon is the chief executive of Amplify Investments. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.